I don't think that I'm exaggerating to say that Genesis 15 may be one of the most significant texts in the Bible. And I hope this morning, by the time that we are finished looking at this passage, you will see that as well. Though I will have to warn you that really it will take the rest of Scripture, and perhaps us preaching through the rest of Scripture, to understand the significance and the importance of Genesis 15. We live in a society that is so far removed from the days of Abraham. We live in air-conditioned homes. We drive cars to work. And when we are hungry, what do we do? We go to the grocery store to buy food that has already been processed for us. Should we ever touch meat, it is because we take it out of a plastic wrapper in the deli, or perhaps we take a bite out of a hamburger at McDonald's. So, when you come to a text like Genesis 15, and you read about Abram cutting in half a cow, a goat, and a ram, so that the Lord would then walk between these bloody carcasses. It seems to us, doesn't it, incredibly weird, strange, gross, and alien. I mean, just try to put yourself there for a moment and just try to imagine what this scene would have looked like. Abram sawing in two these animals. Abram covered in blood. Animal pieces all over the ground. And then a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces? To our 21st century eyes, this is an odd scene indeed. And yet, it is one of the most important events in the entire history of Scripture. As we'll see this morning, it's in this bloody mess of a scene that God cuts his covenant with Abraham. A covenant that God himself, as we're going to learn, God himself will fulfill. It's this covenant with Abram that's going to set the stage for the rest of the storyline of Scripture, including the coming of Christ. With that said, I want us this morning to look at Genesis 15. So if you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15. We're going to focus specifically on verses 7 through 21. Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. I want to begin with some background. Last week we covered verses 1 through 6. 
And I want to start there. We learned from those verses that God had made a promise to Abram. And what was this promise? It's a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And at the beginning of Genesis 15, we see it elaborated upon. What was this problem, this promise? Well, it involved descendants. Abram's descendants, God said, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And on top of this, there would be this great army of offspring that was to come from this one man. But it would not start, remember, it would not start with Eleazar of Damascus, Abram's servant. Instead, God told Abram it would start with his own son. His own son. His own heir who was yet to be born. What was Abram's response to this? Abram believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And the Lord counted Abram's faith as righteousness. It's with this in mind that we now come to verse 7. Look with me at verses 7 through 8, where we see Abram's Lord and Abram's question and request. When Abram believes the Lord, when he trusts in God's promise, God then says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess, Abram. I am the one who has done this. I want you to notice something here. God's promise to Abram, it not only involves descendants, but land as well. And these two things tend to go together. As we've seen in previous chapters, God not only has promised to make Abram's descendants great, but he has also promised now to give Abram a land of promise, specifically the land of Canaan. In Genesis 15, 7, though, we can't fail to see, we, we can't fail to observe how this promise of land is connected to God. Who is promising? Who is it that is, that is making this promise to Abram of this land? It's none other than God himself. As Abram's Lord, he called Abram out of his pagan heritage in Ur to serve the one true and living God. It's as if God is saying to Abram in this moment, Abram, never forget who has given you this promise. It's I, the Lord, your God, the one who, the, the very one who has redeemed you, Abram, and the very one who is going to make your name great for my glory. But keep in mind where Abram is at this point. Abram asks God how he is to know that he will acquire this land. After all, Abram doesn't have descendants yet. 
And at this point, he really doesn't even possess the land as others are dwelling in it. Abram is asking the Lord for verification, for a sign of goodwill, for an oath perhaps. In order to, to reassure Abram that God will do what he has promised he will do, the Lord is going to do something that is so significant. He is going to establish his covenant with Abram. Literally, the text means God is going to cut a covenant with Abram. This is the language that's used in this text, which brings us to our next point on your outline. God's covenant in verses 8 through 21. What is a covenant? If you were with us this morning in the membership class, we talked about briefly what a covenant involves and what it means. In its most basic sense, a covenant is a relationship that involves at least an oath, an oath that, that binds two parties together, committing them to these covenant promises. I want you to notice several aspects of what a covenant ceremony like this includes. On your outline, I give you three in particular. First of all, in Genesis 15, it's going to involve the slain of animals, literally torn in half. God commands Abram, Notice what it says in verses 9 through 11. He commands Abram to bring before him a heifer, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What is Abram to do with these animals? With the exception of the birds, Abram is to cut them in two. He is to butcher them and lay each half over against the other. After butchering these animals and laying them down, Abram's job is then to keep the birds overhead, these birds of prey, keep them from coming down and consuming these carcasses. You can, I hope you can see here just what a gruesome picture this is. Don't try for a minute to sanitize or to sterilize this incident. This is gruesome. It would have looked gruesome and it would have smelled like it. If you were there, it would have been a sight to see, but it also would have been a smell to see as well. Bloody animal parts on the ground. Birds of prey circling over your head. As Abram tries to, to drive them away from these bloody carcasses. This doesn't seem, this doesn't look like a banqueting table. No, this looks more like the back room of a butcher shop. Except here, it's in the wild, in the open, 
As verse 12 says, the sun went down and a great darkness fell upon Abram. I want you, we have to to transition to these other points, but I want you to, to hold on to this vivid picture in your mind as we're going to come back to it in a minute in order to understand what this bloody mess is all about. But let's move on to a second key ingredient to this covenant, which is the prophecy of land. Look at verses 12 through 16. But these sawn-in-half animal pieces laid out everywhere, God then returns to his promises. Have you ever noticed how so often in Scripture, word and deed follow one another? God doesn't just give Abram a word, but then he then acts upon it, and then he doesn't just leave Abram with that word, he then follows it up with another word of interpretation. That's the case here. These animals are laid out. God then returns to his promises, but this time he gets really specific. Really specific. In fact, he is so specific about what the future will bring that I think it's fair to call this some type of a prophecy, except it's from the Lord himself. What does this, this prophecy entail and consist of? In verse 13, God tells Abram that he is to know for certain that Abram's offspring will be sojourners, pilgrims in the land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. What is God talking about? What is he talking about? We know from what follows after the death of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, that the Lord is speaking about the Israelites, the very offspring of Abram, Israelites who one day will be slaves in Egypt, this superpower under Pharaoh. God tells Abram in verse 13 that while God's people are in the land of Egypt, they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Don't don't just pass over this. Four hundred years. I mean, if you are Abram hearing this, this surely doesn't sound like the fulfillment of God's promise, does it? Four hundred years, and not just four hundred years, but four hundred years of slavery? How is this the fulfillment of God's promise of blessings, not only to his people, but to all nations? Notice what God says next in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Ah. So God has a plan, doesn't he? He has a plan. And though Abram's offspring will go through this horrific time of slavery in Egypt, God will deliver them. People, this is 
hundreds of years before this even happens. And God is giving His Word. God is the one. He is the one who will bring His people back to the land that He is now showing Abram. A land that they will possess and a land that will be a new Eden. Notice, though, that there are other divine purposes as well. Look at verse 16. At the end of verse 16, God says that he will not only bring Abram's descendants back to the land of promise, but in doing so, he will also punish the Amorites for their iniquity. Remember, the Amorites were descendants of Ham. They would would become one of the main people groups besides the Canaanites dwelling in this land of promise. However, here we learn that they would become a very wicked people. So wicked that from generation to generation, their wickedness would only increase. But a point in time is coming when God will no longer tolerate their wicked ways. And so, God's plan is to give his people the land by bringing judgment and destruction upon this wicked people. In other words, God will bless his people, but he is going to do it through conquering his enemies. Which brings us to the third aspect of this covenant in verses 17 through 21. Fire and smoke, which very much symbolize and represent the very presence of God and his promise. With this prophecy now spoken, God performs what is to be the main, the main act of cutting this covenant. The the pieces, the carcasses are laid on the ground. And God is going to walk through them. He, He is going to walk right between these bloody carcasses. As is often the case in the Old Testament, God will use fire to represent his presence. Think with me about the rest of the Old Testament. How often does this happen? Often. Throughout the Old Testament, we see fire exhibit and display and tell the people God is present. He appears to to Moses. How? in a burning, fiery bush. He leads Israel out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day, and by night, how? By a pillar of fire. And we could keep going. Here in Genesis 15, fire is present in two objects. This 
this flaming torch and this smoking fire pot. Again, I want you, I want you to just imagine what this must have looked like and smelled like. It's nighttime. There were no street lamps. It's dark, very dark. And here in front of you are these bloody animal pieces that you have slaughtered and spent the day driving away birds of the air that want to devour them. And then suddenly, suddenly smoke begins to fill the air. Smoke. And then you see in front of you a torch and a fire pot passing through these pieces. The smell itself must have been overwhelming. As dead animals and smoke combusted together in this this scene. And yet, with the fire and smoke came the very presence of God. In other words, God himself was walking between the pieces. God himself was passing through when the smoke filled the air. Perhaps perhaps you're wondering at this point, what is going on? And this is strange to you. Why did God choose to make a covenant in this way? And what does this mean for him to walk between these butchered animal pieces? Typically in ancient times, a covenant would be cut between a king and a lesser ruler. Animals would be cut in two, and it was, don't miss this, it was the lesser ruler, the lesser party, who was the one who would walk between the pieces. Why? Why? By walking between these butchered animal pieces, he was essentially saying to all witnessing that if if he does not uphold the covenant, may he become like them. You see? Should he dare to break this pact, this covenant, if he should be so bold to violate it, may he be torn in two, cut in half, and destroyed. 
You see now why a bloody mess like this is so important? If those covenanting with one another are really going to take the covenant seriously, this is no small matter. This is life and death. There are several things, several things remarkably different about this covenant in Genesis 15, though. There are several things that should catch your eye as you're reading this passage and should scream out to you, why? And how? First of all, did you notice it is not the lesser party who passes between the pieces? But God himself, God himself, as represented in this smoking fire pot, in this flaming torch, passing between these bloody carcasses, God himself, how is this even possible? Yet right. In other words, it is in this covenant, it is the greater party who is passing between the pieces. God who initiates the covenant and binds himself to it. People, God himself is the one who cuts this covenant. And it's God Himself who pledges to keep it and to fulfill it. Abram doesn't lift himself up to heaven, but God stoops down, so far down, into this bloody mess to Abram in order to bind himself to this covenant. If that doesn't say amazing grace, I don't know what else does. But there's more. There's much more. God puts himself under the threat. God puts himself under the curse of this covenant. Not only does God himself come down and is present with Abram, but God then binds himself to the curses of the covenant. He puts down his own life and says, if I do not fulfill this covenant, may I become like these bloody Carcasses, may I be cut in two, and may I be destroyed. This is God Himself. God's self maledictory oath, if we could call it that, is an oath where He threatens to bring the curse on His own head should He violate it. 
certainly demonstrating that this is a God who will be faithful. He curses himself if he should go back on his word. If It's as if God said to Abram, Abram, I am putting my own life on the line if I fail to uphold this covenant and its promises to you. But there's something else. God walks between the pieces on behalf of both parties. In other words, God will not only uphold his end of the covenant, but Abram's as well. We're going to see in the chapters to come, especially when we get to Genesis 17, that Abram has some serious responsibilities to carry out for this covenant. And yet, they are done. They are done under God's guarantee. God, not Abram, walks between these pieces. God demonstrates that he is the one who will fulfill the responsibilities of this covenant. And he's going to do it through Abram, but God himself is going to have to do it in a way that Abram never imagined because Abram is a man and a sinner and he will fail, as will his offspring. This This is outstanding because we know that Abram, we've already seen it, but we know from the chapters that come that Abram will not walk in perfect obedience. Nor will his descendants. And, and perhaps we could say, especially his descendants. We know that Abram and Israel after him will fail to obey the covenant. They will. And God knows this. He knows this. So essentially God is bringing down the curse of the covenant upon himself. Of course we know from the rest of the storyline of the Bible, though, that the curse for covenant disobedience is placed on God. The Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of Abraham. And the true and very obedient son. It is he who performs in perfect in obedience. And therefore, it's he who bears the curse the very wrath of God. And what's so amazing of all is that it's through this curse-bearing son of Abraham 
the covenant of Abraham is being fulfilled. Is this not what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, what? The blessings, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. At the end of this story, perhaps you're wondering, what does this covenant have to do, what does this covenant with Abram have to do with the rest of the story of the Bible? And what does this have to do with us today as those who are Christ followers in the new covenant? We could spend a lot of time answering that question. I want to take just a couple of minutes. I want you to to turn over your outline because I didn't put these points down. I want you to turn turn the outline over and I want you... I want you to write down a couple of points here. There's no way I can exhaust this. But I want you, I I want to give you a little bit of food so that you can go home and you you can chew on this. So I want you to be prepared to write down some points and some verses. The first thing I want you to understand has to do with this land of promise. And the second thing, the second thing has to do with God's covenant love and faithfulness. So, number one, the land of promise. And number two, God's covenant faithfulness. And we could even say his love. So let's start with the first one. In Genesis 15, Genesis 15, it places the promise of land front and center. Did you catch that? I mean, have you noticed how the story is progressing? Previously, in in previous chapters, it revolved around what? Descendants. They're going to be numerous, Abram. They're going to be as many as the stars of the heaven. As many as the dust on earth. But here, there's more information. Now there's going to be land, too. Which makes sense that the two would go together. But it raises the question of how, how are we to understand this promise of land to be fulfilled? Look at verse 18 of Genesis 15. God follows up on his covenantal actions with covenantal words. And these are words of promise. He ends the passage there, this entire chapter, by saying, to your offspring, I give this land. This is after he has cut the covenant. He follows up on it with these words. Abram, to your offspring, I give this land. And as you can tell from this long list of people in the land, this promise is all-encompassing. Now, there have been different interpretations on how this promise of land is fulfilled. And I do think that God means the land of Canaan in this promise. I mean, this becomes clear in the immediate context, right? As Abram 
dies and his descendants rise. God delivers, just as he said he would. He delivers his people after 400 years of bondage. He delivers them out of Egypt, but into where? Into the land. He brings them back to where Abraham was. Of course, they don't enter under Moses because of their disobedience. Instead, they enter into the land under Joshua. And so this land plays a pivotal role for the rest of the New Testament. I mean, the the Old Testament, excuse me. And the promise of this land, I think it's fair to say that this promise is being fulfilled the farther you read in the Old Testament especially as Israel is about to enter into it finally after all their disobedience. What a marvelous and exciting moment that would have been. But some just stop here. Only viewing this land of promise as involving Israel's reception of the physical land of Canaan I think that's a mistake. While it's not less, it is much, much more. This, the land, if we are reading the rest of Scripture, the land, like so many other things in the Old Testament, it is a type, a shadow of the greater reality yet to come. What is that greater reality? The new creation. We tend to to so simplify the Christian life to just think that we live and we die and then we just go and float around on clouds as some bodiless... No. No. Yes, when we die, we go to be with the Lord, as Paul says, but that is not it. This is a, it is, in some sense, an awkward state in which we wait eagerly for what? The resurrection of our bodies and a new heaven and new earth. Very physical existence. A new creation. It is this new creation that will one day come that God has intended to bring about ever since Eden was lost. A restored new creation has been God's goal ever since Eden was so severely compromised. And here in Genesis 15, this land of promise, it's not merely limited to the land of Canaan, though it's certainly not less. But as the story of Scripture progresses, we see that this land is but a small taste of the land to come. The new heavens and the new earth. The land, therefore, it functions as a type 
as a pattern of the new creation that is yet to come. And as the New Testament says, everywhere is our future hope. The coming of a risen, resurrected Christ and the inauguration of this new covenant is but the first fruits of this new creation to come. We're giving, we are given clues of this everywhere. We don't have time to, to, to go from Genesis to Revelation, but I want you to write down some of these biblical passages and go back to them on your own time. Notice the promise made to Abram in Genesis 12. A blessing to come, which is, it's not just for Jews, but as Paul is going to unpack, it's for Gentiles as well. In other words, it is for the nations scattered throughout the whole earth. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant not only has national, but international implications and fulfillment. Paul makes this very point in Galatians 3, a passage we just read earlier. When Paul says that it is through Christ that the nations will be blessed. But the rest of Scripture gives us clues as well that Abram himself understood the land not as something merely limited to Canaan, but rather encompassing the whole created order. The prophets. Think about Isaiah 65 and 66 and so many others. The prophets anticipate a day to come when the city of Jerusalem will go well beyond four walls. A day when its borders will be and stretch to the entire creation. A Jerusalem that all the nations will run to in fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abram. Or jump to the New Testament. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Hebrews 3 through 4, the author says that God's rest is not limited to Israel entering the land of Canaan, but it pointed forward to the salvific rest to come in Christ and ultimately in the new creation. Hebrews 11, the author also argues that Abram's blessings, his inheritance, was not merely the land of Canaan, but it's heavenly. It is a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. And God is the author. He is the architect of this city. And this city is none other than the new creation. And if I haven't exhausted you yet, read Revelation 21 and 22. Perhaps texts that make this point more abundantly clear. John uses, 
Do you understand what imagery John uses in these two chapters? John uses the imagery of Eden to refer to the land of the new creation, a land that is not limited to Canaan, but extends to the entire creation. This land is described using the imagery of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple in order to show God's people that God himself will dwell with you. And the land of Canaan only pointed forward to something far greater, a new heaven and a new earth. You see, Abram by faith, as as Hebrews emphasizes, looked forward to a city, a new Jerusalem, whose builder was God, and a creation where God himself dwelled with his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In this city, there is no temple, for Christ, Revelation says, Christ the Lord is its temple. And this new Eden will be the tree of life whose leaves will be the healing for whom? The nations. The land of Canaan is but a microcosm of the entire world and the new creation to come. The inauguration of this new creation, it has already begun to be ushered in through the new covenant of Christ that you participate in through his own blood. Which brings me to one last point, and I'll keep it brief. God's covenant love and faithfulness. Does Genesis 15 disturb you? It should. It should disturb you. How could the God of the universe stoop down so low, so low as to walk between these bloody carcasses, take upon himself the curse of the covenant, and promise his own destruction should it not be fulfilled? People, Genesis 15 doesn't, if it doesn't prove that our God is personal and loving and seriously faithful, what will? Our God accommodates himself to us in order to save us and redeem us. Sometimes in life we're tempted to think that, and have you not been here? We're tempted to think God is silent. And he's so removed from me. Uninvolved in our affairs. And, and he must be just disconnected. I've been there. I know you have. That is not the God of the Bible. We worship a God who is transcendent. We cannot deny that. But he, but he is also with us, Emmanuel. So imminent that he comes down from his heavenly throne in order to walk in a pool of blood 
and carcasses, even put down his own life as a guarantee that his promises, they won't return void. Our God did this for us. For us. And we know from the rest of the Bible storyline that this is just the start. It's just the start for one day the Son of God would come and he would die spilling his own blood. And he would do it for us. I don't think I could say it any better than the, the church father, St. Augustine. Who then are you, my God? Does this not sound like Abraham? Who then are you? Most high, utterly good, utterly powerful and omnipotent, most merciful and most just, deeply hidden, and yet most intimately present. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much more we could say. And this long sermon doesn't even begin to do justice to your word in Genesis 15. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this Sunday, may we think about Genesis 15 and the offspring, the seed from Abram who was to come, whom Paul says is Christ Jesus our Lord. God, you have become incarnate for the forgiveness of our sins in order by your blood to cut a new covenant. We grasp Christ as our mediator that we may be participants in this new covenant of your son's blood. Amen.